welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. This is the word of the Lord. Several years ago, um, when I was relatively a new Christian, um, I was on Facebook and I connected with someone I hadn't seen in many years. And it was somebody that I grew up with since I was really little. In fact, his grandmother was my aunt's sister, so we were almost related and we actually lived next door to one another and so growing up we spent a lot of time together but then we moved away and before you know it you know we, were, we became grown-ups and and we both had our own lives and the years flew by and our friendship became kind of a distant memory it's just kind of how it is but then we reconnected on social media once again which means right he sent me a friend request and then what I did was I responded to it and accepted it, and that's pretty much it. I, I think that many of you kind of experienced that on social media, right? You have hundreds of, of friends, hundreds of people you call friends, hundreds of people that you follow, right? People send you friend requests, and what you do then, you go, you, you accept it, but again, that's pretty much it. And, and if you accept someone's friend request on social media, typically, right, when they, when they begin to actually want to talk to you or they want to message you, I don't know if you're like, you're probably like me, you're like, okay, I haven't talked to you in a long time, so what do you want to sell, right? Why are you contacting me, right? After all these years, now you want to talk, right? So is it Amway? Like, is it multi-level marketing? Is it, you know what I mean? Why can't you just be like everyone else and just post pictures of your kids on the first day of school? I'll like yours, you like mine, and we're good. We don't have to, we don't have to talk, right? Most of us have friends on social media that we just don't talk to. And it was like that for me and my friend. He reached out, I responded, and it was all good. We take turns liking each other's posts. It was, it, was, it was fine. But then he begins to post some things that really kind of begin to ruffle my feathers. And I realized after a little bit of time that my friend, after all these years, wasn't really like me. And he wasn't like me in a very important way. My friend was an atheist. And, and not only was he an atheist, he was a hardened, hateful, outspoken atheist. He was what some people call an anti-theist. He wanted people to know that he was an atheist. He wanted people to know that, that he thought that faith was, was only for the, the brainless idiots of the world. He, he wanted people to know that the idea of God was, was really worthy of the worst kinds of mockery possible. And so, to be, to be honest, it really kind of surprised me. I wasn't expecting this from somebody I grew up with. His family, most of them professed to be believers. He grew up, basically, in a Christian culture. And so I wasn't expecting him to, to, to be this way. Now, I wasn't expecting him to be an on-fire Christian. I kind of expected him to be a cultural Christian. But I had no clue that he had so much disdain and, and hatred for the faith. And it kind of rattled my cage a little bit because... Because he would post some things that were just downright mean and just downright pointed and nasty. And so I decided to begin to call him out on it. Now, I did it in a loving way. I didn't like, you know, tell him he was a jerk. But I did try to like point out that I'm a believer and we're friends. Hey, we need you maybe should like tone that down. And that led to a number of conversations about faith and about atheism. And I began to dig why he was so hostile to the faith. And, and he would just throw up objections and then I would answer them. And, and then he would, he would say that there's inconsistency in the Bible, and I would point out how that it's not true. And then he would, he would go through all the common arguments that atheists have. Well, if there's a God, then, then why the Christian God, not one of the millions of other gods, right? And, and if there's a God, then why can't we see him? And if there's a God, then why do bad things happen to, to good people? And, and I took time to listen, and I provided clear biblical and philosophical answers to all his questions. And over time, his tone began to soften toward me. He wasn't quite so hateful, but he was still stubbornly holding on to his atheistic worldview. And I talked to him about it, and, and I talked to him about his family and how really everybody in his family was a believer. And I even told him my own story and how I once was an atheist and how, how Carson, how God used Carson to open my eyes to the truth. 
And I thought that would have certainly pulled at his heartstrings and maybe, maybe would have softened him a little more. And at one point it seemed like, like he didn't have sufficient enough reason to deny Christ anymore. He really, at some, one point, it seemed like he didn't have a sufficient enough reason to say that there was no God. And so I began to press him on it. You know, why is he bent on denying God's existence? And finally he said, I don't care what you say. I don't care about the evidence that you present to me. I don't care about your arguments. I don't care. I'm just not going to believe. The only way that I'm going to believe is for God to do some miracle in my life that demonstrates for me that he's real. I demand that God give me a sign. In fact, if there is a God, he owes me a sign. And, and the thing is, being a newer Christian at that time, I believed him. I believed what he said. I believed that, that if God were to do some sort of miracle, that he would believe. I believed that if God would just do something to touch his life, if God would just show him the power of his, of his grace, that, that he would believe and become a Christian, I began to pray, Lord, do some kind of miracle. Show yourself to him. Prove to him that you exist so he'll turn to you and believe. But what I've come to realize over the years of encountering lots of people and, and reading through the Word of God, that that is not the problem. The problem has never been a lack of miracles. The problem has never been a lack of evidence. The problem has never been, right, God not doing enough for someone to have faith. See, there's more than, than enough evidence for people to believe. The problem is altogether something else. And that's what we see in the text today. This is a, a high point in, the, in this gospel. This is a climax. As we continue to walk through Mark, in these short verses, we're going to see the real problem of unbelief. So turn with me to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, and it reads, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Now, as you, if you've been with us for a while, you'd know that we've talked a lot about the Pharisees in the gospel of Mark. The Pharisees, as you know, is a group of devout religious Jews who are known for their high morality and their ability to keep the most tiny little rule and law. They were highly respected. They were sought as the elite religious people. They, along with the Sadducees, were the visible religious leaders in Judea, and the Pharisees were powerful religiously and also politically speaking. And they were the ones that the Israelites were really looking to for guidance and direction in spiritual life. In fact, the high priest at the time was a Pharisee, and they had been Pharisees for a long time. And so the Pharisees themselves you know, thought that they themselves were the religious authority. And because of that, then, they had several run-ins with, with Christ, several conflicts with Jesus, because it seemed that he was threatening their authority, and so they began to push back on him. If you remember back in chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralytic man. This is one of the greatest stories in the Bible. I mean, a guy shows up with his friends. They can't get in the door. What do they do? They tear the roof off Peter's house and they lower him down, right, for everyone to see. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're healed. He says, son, your sins are forgiven, which surprised everybody in the room. But the scribes in their minds were thinking, wait a minute, he's blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knowing what they were thinking, says, just so you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, he heals the man. And the guy gets up and walks. And then in, in chapter 2, I mean, and then after that, Jesus, he goes out and he calls Levi to follow him. Levi was the worst kind of sinner. He was a tax collector. And then not only that, he goes and has dinner at Levi's house. And who does Levi invite to meet Jesus? Other sinners and tax collectors, and, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they see this, and they're like, wait a minute, he's a religious man. What's he doing hanging out with these people? And Jesus puts them in their place and says, you know, the well are not what needs a, needs a doctor, the sick do. I didn't come to, to save the righteous, I came to save sinners, right? And then after that, right, they notice that Jesus' disciples aren't following their weekly fasts. You see, their national fast that they did every year, but the Pharisees wanted to be that extra and always want to be over the top, they had two weekly fasts that they did. And they believed that if you truly were of God, then you would do those things. And, and Jesus and his disciples weren't. 
And so they were questioning him, and Jesus was essentially saying, your man-made traditions in the gospel are not compatible. The new wine of the gospel will not, is not suitable of the old wineskins of your old busted-up traditions. And then the Pharisees, after that, notice that his disciples are picking some heads of grain on the Sabbath. And they think they're breaking the law because picking grain, even though it's for a snack, was considered harvesting, right? And so they're basically saying, you guys are breaking the, the, the law, right? And Jesus then turns and says, basically, wait a minute, your man-made rules aren't the law, number one. Number two, right, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the owner of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, and then right after that, Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath. Right? And then what happens? A man with a, with a deformed arm comes in. And, and they know. Like, Jesus has the ability to heal, and they're watching. Because if he heals this guy, then he's breaking the law. He's healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, has him come forward. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. doesn't even touch him. He says, stretch out your hand. He makes him new. He heals him. And these Pharisees, instead of rejoicing for this man's good fortune and being having his life restored and seeing a wonderful act of God in their midst, what do they do? They would seek to have Jesus killed because they believe that he's broken the law. And then... After that, an official delegation of Pharisees come. Because at this point, Jesus has been dealing with all the local guys. Now the, 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 the officials from Jerusalem are coming. Now he's really in trouble, right? And they come to investigate what Jesus is doing. And they themselves witness Jesus heal someone that is blind, mute, and demon-possessed. And they can't deny the power of what Christ has done. And so what do they say? Well, he did that by the power of Satan. He did that by the power of, of a demon. He's demon-possessed himself, and Jesus then turns and warns them that they, because of their hard hearts, were about to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and become unredeemable because of the hardness of their hearts. And then the last encounter was, was where Jesus and his disciples, after a long couple days of ministry, finally get a chance to eat, and the Pharisees begin to complain you know, to Jesus and, and that his disciples were breaking sacred tradition. And what was their transgression? What was the horrible crime that they committed? They didn't wash their hands before they ate. That was their, their complaint. And Jesus calls them out on their hypocrisy boldly, and he declares to them that their rules are not the law of God. And then he explains that the truth, the truth that what makes a person defiled and at odds with God is not some external thing. It is not... Not obeying rules. What, what makes a person defiled and unclean before God is the condition of his heart. It's not out there. It's in here. You see, over and over again, the Pharisees come against Christ. And over and over again, he corrects them and puts them in their place. Over and over again, he demonstrates who he is. And over and over again, they just want to fight with him. And here now, the Pharisees have come once again to confront Christ. After everything that has been said, after everything has been done, they continue to come against him. And understand, they're not there to talk and reason with him. <laughs> they're there to argue. Right. That's what it says. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. And, and the Greek word here that's translated as sutsateo is a word that really has a wide kind of semantic range uh, because it can mean to investigate and discuss, but in this context, it clearly points out that these men are disputing with Christ. They are arguing with him. In fact, it could be said that they're debating with him. And they're not trying to objectively see if Christ is who he says that he is. They're not looking you know, to get answers to their curious questions. They're contending with him that he's not the Christ. They're trying to prove that he's not the Christ. They're standing against him. They're arguing with him. So this is, this is simply an ongoing dispute and an argument. It's just the same argument that just continues on, which then leads us, right, in light of these interactions, to an important conclusion. But before we get to that conclusion, there's some things that we need to really clear up. Because otherwise, if we don't, we're going we're gonna to miss how to apply this. You see, when, when we, in our culture, we look at this text in Mark, and we see Jesus, how he interacts with the various groups of people, we make some really big assumptions. And I want you to know some of those assumptions are incorrect, and some of those assumptions can get us into trouble. For example, what we see in the text is that Jesus, he had dinner and spent time with sinners. 
while he also had conflict with a group of religious leaders. And because of that, our conclusion that we, 2,000 years later, tend to draw is Jesus is cool with sinners, but he can't stand religious people. That's one of the conclusions that we, that we come to. Jesus loves sinners. He hates religious people. And because we assume that then, we assume that the problem with the world then isn't the sinners. The problem with the world is what? Religious people. Tell me I'm wrong. That right there is the point of view of the world around us, by the way. Especially here in California. That right there is the point of view of our culture. That right there is the point of view of many people even in the church, especially people who have embraced the idea of social justice or cultural Marxism or critical race theory. That Jesus is okay with sinners, but he's always against the religious. You see, there's this sense that that the sinners are always innocent, which is an oxymoron, by the way, but the religious are always guilty. And that the sinners are always the oppressed ones, but the religious are the oppressors. We assume that Christ loved only the sinners, but despised the religious Pharisees. But there's a problem with that. The problem is that it's not that clear cut. And the reason is, number one, they were all sinners. All of them were sinners. Both the religious and the non-religious. It's just that the Bible labels some sinners and tax collectors. Number two, of those that are outside the religious system called sinners and tax collectors, of those, the fact is many of them had faith in Christ and turned to him. But many didn't. You realize that, right? There's an assumption that just that it seems like every, all the sinners were attracted and followed Christ. But many of them didn't follow him. A lot of the sinners who, who, who had contact with Christ didn't follow him. But, and on the other hand, there are a lot of Pharisees who judged Christ and didn't believe in him, but there were some who actually did. Like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They crushed, they'd trusted in Christ. I don't know if you realize that or not. And so it's not like one group of people accepted Christ completely or one group of, of, of people you know, denied Christ completely. This is an important paradigm for us. It's like, it's like the Jews and the Gentiles. Not all Jews rejected Christ, though many did. And not all Gentiles accepted Christ, though many did. And so this is not about Jesus loving poor people and hating rich people. This is not about Jesus loving people outside of the religious system and hating those inside of, inside of it. This is not about Jesus loving those who, who gave up on religion and hating those who hold on to it. There's more to it than that. You see, what you need to understand is what the Pharisees in this context, what they represent. The Pharisees that Jesus has contact with doesn't represent every possible religious person who took the law seriously. And it doesn't even represent every person who who claimed to be part of the Pharisees. It represents a specific group of people who think that they know the truth and have something, something in common with the rest of the world. This represents a group of people that in spite of being religious, they have a hard heart towards Christ, just like the rest of the world. You see, the the Pharisees are a great example for us because they are uniquely equipped to demonstrate for us what the real problem of unbelief is. Because these people, they were not ignorant They had the scriptures. They memorized the scriptures. They had the prophecies. They had the temple. They had the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial system, all of which it points towards Christ. So they were not ignorant. They had the information, yet they were still blind to the truth. These Pharisees represent the rest of the unbelieving world. And we're going to see how that's going to play out in just a minute. But remember, he says, it says in Mark, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Now Mark doesn't tell us what they're arguing about. He just says that they argued. And and they probably argued about a lot of things. I mean, I know that they've argued about Jesus being the Messiah and what the Messiah was and what what he looked like. Where did Jesus get his power from? Right? Jesus was, what what his family was like. You know, why did Jesus speak with so much authority? Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus do that? And on and on and on. Mark doesn't tell us what they argued about. He just tells us they were arguing. And this leads us, as I said before, then, to an important conclusion. And the the conclusion is, is one of universal application. 
one of the universal ways that unbelievers respond to the, to the gospel is to make arguments against it. Is to argue against it all the time. Unbelievers, when it comes to the gospel, will argue about everything and anything. That's what we see in the world around us. That's what the church has always seen. Unbelievers always argue against the gospel like my friend. It didn't matter how many answers I provided him, he had another argument. He just kept arguing. They argue over the historicity of Jesus. Was he really a person? Did he really exist? Right? They argue over the reliability of the Bible. They argue over how, how Christians have behaved throughout the centuries. I mean, Christianity can't be right because of the way Christians have behaved at some points. They argue about you know, various doctrines. They argue about why there's so many denominations. They argue about what science says and the Bible says and how it's not compatible. They argue over the divinity of Christ, whether he was really God or not. They argue you know, over whether God was once an exalted man that became God. They argue if God was, was so good, then why do bad things happen? You see, it's, we see it all the time. And more and more on social media. In fact, the internet has really emboldened atheists. I mean, if you have friends who, have, who are atheists, you've probably seen them talk about it or argue about it at least a little bit. And some of you, if you're like me, you probably engaged that and decided, why am I doing this? Because I'm wasting my time. You probably noticed that there are lots of YouTube channels that claim to be able to destroy proof for God and argue against Christ. In fact, there are YouTube channels for every possible argument and every possible cult arguing against the orthodox understanding of the faith. Unbelievers just argue against the gospel. They just do so. And it's the same with the early church. It's not new. Like any of the problems we face, by the way, I hope you can have seen that consistently is that the things that we face today were, were, are not unique to us. They're things that they've faced since the beginning. Paul warns Timothy about this in his second letter, about arguing with false teachers and unbelievers. He says to Timothy, remind them, the people in the church, of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good. Whew. I should have learned that one a long time ago. Does no good but only ruins the hearers. Again, in verse 23, he says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. False teachers and false believers and unbelievers have always argued and will continue to argue against the gospel. And that's what we see here with the Pharisees. They're not trying to learn from Christ. They're not trying to honestly understand his point of view. They're trying to contest with him and argue against him saying, you're not who you claim to be. That is their... And, and once he answers an argument, they just come up with another one. Right? But notice, in this particular text, they go from arguing to testing. It says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeing from him uh, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So, so let me just bottom line this for you. Right? They're arguing with Christ... And as always, he is like turning things around on them, and he's putting them in their place. He's answering all of their objections in ways they couldn't possibly expect, and they finally get to the point where they say, fine, prove it. That's really the gist of what's happening here. They're saying, you know what? You say you're the Son of God, then prove it. You say that you're the Messiah, then prove it. Do a miracle right now, right here, right now, and prove it to us. You see, the way unbelievers invariably respond to the gospel when their arguments fail is then to turn and demand of God a miracle. That's just like my friend, right? He made this argument. I patiently endured and answered all his questions. I showed him from the scriptures what the truth is. I responded to every one of his objections to where he couldn't reason with me anymore. And what does he say? I need a miracle to believe. Just like these guys. I need a miracle. I need to see a sign here. That's what's happening here. They tried to use the law to tear down Christ, and it didn't work. They tried to use their traditions to tear down Christ, and it didn't work. They tried all kinds of arguments and word games to test him, and nothing works. And so all that's left for them is to finally go, fine, then prove it. Show us a miracle. It says they were seeking a sign from heaven. And so they were looking for God to basically write something in the sky, right? Or they were looking for some kind of cataclysm to prove that Christ is what he says that he is. 
I had someone recently ask me, you know, Sherman, why wouldn't God just do that and give them a sign? Why, why didn't he just do something so big that they would believe? And my answer is simply, right, God didn't give him a sign because it wouldn't matter. Right? It wouldn't matter if he did because it wouldn't change anything. I know that might seem counterintuitive to, to some of you, but, but it really wouldn't matter. I mean, Jesus just fed 4,000 men and their families and 5,000 men and their families with a few fish and you know, some sardines and had enough left over that it was an abundance. It was clear. He walked on water, calmed the, the sea twice, healed people from their sicknesses, restored sight to the blind, made the deaf hear again. He, he, he cast out not just a few demons, but, but a legion of demons. He healed a man with a deformed arm that you could clearly visibly see that he was deformed and then not deformed without even touching him. He even raised a young girl back from the dead. He performed miracles you know, publicly in front of hundreds of witnesses. Even the Pharisees themselves saw them with their own eyes. Remember, they couldn't deny that he could do miracles. They were just denying where they were coming from. And so they've seen him multiple times on multiple occasions displaying his awesome power, and they don't believe in him. So another miracle is not going to help. But the person I was talking to said, well, wait a minute, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about one of them, you know, really big, cataclysmic, mind-blowing kind of miracles. I said, oh, you mean like the ten plagues that God did against the Egyptians so that the Egyptians would let the people go? Or how about when God, visibly during the day, went in front of them in a pillar of smoke, and then at nighttime, he went in a pillar of fire, and when they finally had a tabernacle, that God's visible presence rested over the tabernacle. Or how about when they went to Mount Sinai, right? that God led them there, and God's visible presence is upon the mountain, that they are, it's so much there that they're afraid to even get close to the mountain. They don't want to have nothing to do with that. Moses, you go up there and talk to him. And Moses goes up and talks to God, and these people, in spite of all these signs and all that God has done for them, go to Aaron and say, hey, make for us a golden calf so we can worship it. No. What you will find is the Old Testament is filled full of cataclysmic miracles that God has performed for his people only for them to not believe and not trust in him. And for them, right, they just rejected God and walked away from him. I mean, Moses part of the Red Sea. Fire came down from Mount Carmel and consumed the sacrifice. The walls of Jericho fell to the ground without anybody lifting a finger. They ate manna every single day from heaven for 40 years. Miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet they still don't believe. You see, unbelievers always want a sign. But I'm going to tell you right now, when they get it, they're still not going to believe. Why? Because the root of the problem of the unbeliever has always been the same. It's their hearts are hard. It doesn't matter. Their hearts are hard to the truth no matter what happens. How many of you have ever seen the, uh, the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? If you haven't, it's like one of the funniest movies of all time. I mean, it's, it's really a great story. In fact, it's the story of the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. It's this epic tale, but set in like 1920s Mississippi, which kind of sounds weird, but really it actually works. It's, it's, it's actually a great story. And the main character played by, by George Clooney is named Ulysses Everett McGill. So he's Ulysses, right? And he's going through this process of trying to get back home to be reunited with his family. And throughout the movie, he, we see him laughing at people for being religious, in fact, two of his companions get baptized, and he's like, baptism, you guys are you know, just dumber than a bag of hammers, right? He just, he just laughed at them. Right? But then trouble comes at, near the end of the movie, and they're caught by the bad guy, and hope seems to be lost, and they're about to be hanged, and, and Ulysses falls to his knees, and with a heartfelt prayer, he looks up to heaven and says, Lord, look down on us sinners. Have mercy on us. I've been so long without seeing my family. Let me see my family again. And he prays his heartfelt prayer, you know, praying for him and his compatriots. And you can just see, like, even his compatriots are beginning to be moved to tears. And as he's praying 
suddenly water starts to trickle in, and then a, then a flood comes and washes away all the bad guys, right? And as they're still in the water, right, and they're holding on the furniture that's floating, right? He starts making fun of them for being superstitious. And the guys are like, no, no, no. You prayed, and God delivered you. And he says, nope, this is a veritable age of reason. And it's funny, and we laugh at that, but that's how people are. How many of you know or have heard of people or even yourself maybe have made a bargain with God? Oh, God, if you'll help me with this, I'll follow you no matter what happens. If I'll just get this job or if, you know what? If you'll just rescue me, or if you just get me out of trouble, if you just let me get in the house without anybody seeing me, if, if you'll just do this, God, if you will come through, I will follow you. But then deliverance comes, and then what happens? Nothing. People go back to the way things were. Because it really didn't matter what God has done. Unbelievers always ask for a sign. It doesn't matter because, because they won't, because it won't change anything. It doesn't matter. That's why Jesus says, why does this generation seek a sign? It's not like he doesn't, hasn't already given them one or that he's given them multiple ones. It doesn't matter. And what you need to see here, though, in this text, what's easy to miss in this text is Jesus is angry now. Okay? It says that he sighed deeply in his, in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? That expression here Side deeply certainly conveys some emotion, but doesn't fully convey the, the force of what Christ is feeling. The Greek word here can also be translated as groaned, right? And, and I think that groaned is probably a better way to express that, that Jesus groaned, and then he says, why does this generation seek a sign, right? We all know what it's like when people groan and then say something. Like It's like, oh, why? Why does this generation now seek a sign? Right? In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus calls these men a wicked and adulterous generation for seeking a sign. You see, Christ is angry about this. And the reason why he's angry is because, because the hard-heartedness of these men makes him angry. Hard-heartedness makes the Lord angry. The Lord is angry about hard-heartedness because, because, because hard-heartedness is a revelation of who we really are. It's a revelation that rebels against a holy and righteous God. That's, that's who we are. Our hard hearts is an outworking of our rebellion against a holy and righteous and just God. It's, it's the root of our sin. Our hard-heartedness is revelation of a rebellion and hatred of God. That's why Jesus is angry here. It's because they hated God so much. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. I don't think they hated God. I mean, they were trying to follow God. In fact, that's why they were religious. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. They believed that they loved God. They didn't love the one true God. They weren't following the one true God. They were following their self-righteousness. They were following their own ability to keep the law as proof that they are good enough and calling that God. They were following themselves disguised as the one true God. They were following a religion. They were following a God of their own making. The truth is, they may have loved that God, but they hated the one true God. That's why they hated Christ. Their hearts were hard. And it betrayed their hatred for God. And Christ was angry at their audacity for asking for a sign. He said, why does this generation ask for a sign? And then he says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He just simply refused. But again, there's something really easy to miss here. You see, what we encounter in this particular passage of, of text here is that the English translators have always struggled to put into words what Christ is literally saying here. Because what's written in English is not exactly what he said in Greek. Even in the most literal of translations like the ESV or the King James or, or whichever one you want to pick, it isn't exactly what he said. 
There, there is not a translation in English that actually communicates exactly what he says, because the Greek here actually is, is kind of hard to communicate the idea behind. You see what Jesus is literally saying. This is, if you took like idea for idea and just lined them up, this is what he says. Truly I say to you, if there will be given to the, to the generation this sign, and that's it. That's what he says. He didn't say, I mean, it's just like the, the thought stops. Truly I say to you, if there will be given to the generation this sign, and that's it. He just kind of stops. Right? And, and, and when we look at that, we go, what does that mean? What is he trying to communicate here? How many, what is he actually saying? He said, what you need to understand is Jesus is using a Greek expression of the time right, that, that they would have understood very clearly. And it would give his, his words a really strong force behind them. And what he says, in essence, is this. Just kind of paraphrasing. If I were to give this generation a sign, then let me be accursed or let me die. That's the implication of him being silent. If I were to give this generation a sign, then let me be killed. Right? It's just like a preposterous idea. That's what he's communicating. The idea here is that a sign is not going to be given. Because if he were to give a sign, he, you know, he might, might as well be killed to do something like that. This is, this is an angry, forceful statement, and it communicates, you know, it, it, and this is compounded by Jesus using the expression before that of truly. Have you ever noticed sometimes Jesus says truly, or he says truly, truly. But when he says truly, he's making a point. He's being emphatic. And so Jesus is groaning out loud, saying, why does this generation ask for a sign? Followed by, I'll tell you the absolute truth. If I were to give a sign to this generation, let me be a curse or killed. I will not give these hard-hearted hypocrites nothing, much less a sign. Can, can you see the anger then? Because then the next thing that happens is he turns around and he walks away. He gets in a boat and leaves them without so much another word. Jesus is angry here. He's seething here. He's angry about their hard hearts. This is a turning point in their relationship. This hard-heartedness is the root of the problem. It is, it is the open, unrepentant rebellion against God. This is the rebellion that brings about the wrath of God, the wrath from which that God produces for all people who rebel against him. This is the root of God's wrath against the world, this hard-heartedness. And in this text, what we're beginning to see is the wrath of God beginning to flare up in the eyes of Christ here. He is absolutely, righteously angry. And he refuses to give them a sign and walks away. And again, there are people that still will insist, well, why would he give them a sign? I mean, because really what, what they're asking for is reasonable. Just speak plainly. Right? Just show us. Just give us a sign and we will believe. It's like the atheist. I, I listened to a debate. And he said, well, you know what? If God were to produce instantly a second moon, and on that moon was written the name of God, then I might believe. And then another atheist said, well, yeah. And if that were to happen, you know, I, I mean, I could believe. But it doesn't mean I'm going to worship him. You see, what they're asking for when people ask for a sign, what they're asking for isn't what they're really asking for. They're not asking for proof so they can believe. They're asking to sit in judgment of God. They're asking to sit in judgment of God so they can determine what, for themselves whether or not they believe that he really exists and whether or not he is really even worthy of their worship or not. I hope you understand the danger of that. It's a dangerous place to be. The creature demanding of the creator, God proved to me that you're God. The creature that was formed out of the dirt by the power of the almighty, sovereign, holy God demanding that God produce proof of his existence. As this creature sits in judgment of God himself. It's ludicrous, right? But people do it all the time. And the root of this is found in Romans chapter 1. In fact, quickly just turn with me. I won't take very long here. 
Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And Paul, in Romans, just before this explains, the power of the gospel is for salvation, for those who believe. And he says, and that the righteous, those who are right with God, the righteous shall live not by rules and not by religion. He says the righteous shall live by faith. One of the greatest passages of scripture of all time. Like, that's the passage that transformed Martin Luther's life, right? And then right after he says that, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed. It is made manifest from heaven. And in this text, we see it in the eyes of Christ here. He is angry and upset. And in this moment, we get a glimpse of the wrath of God as Christ turns his back in judgment against the Pharisees. What an awful and terrible thing to be a person to have Christ finally turn his back and walk away. The wrath of God is being revealed. And what is revealed? What is it that's revealed? What is it revealed against? Against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. What we have to realize and what we have to deal with is the wrath of God is a real thing. And let me just tell you, let me tell you what that means. You, when you put your trust in Christ, you're not saved from the devil. Because the devil is not your greatest problem. And you're not saved from yourself. Yourself is not the greatest problem. And you're not saved from the physical consequences of your sin. That is not your greatest problem. You're saved, if you were in Christ, from the awful and terrible, enduring, eternal wrath of God. You're saved from God himself. You understand that. That's why, Paul, that's why the, the, the Bible says, what a, what a terrible thing. What an awful thing to fall into the hands of God. The greatest problem that you have is that if you're not in Christ, the awful and terrible wrath of God abides on you. And one day will be poured out on you. The wrath of God is burning. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven in Christ. The wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Right? But here's the key. Pay close attention. Here's why Christ would not give these men a sign. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, their sin, suppress the truth. That's the key. They suppress the truth. You see, it's not that people don't know that God exists. They know. It's not that they don't know the one true God. They know him. It's not that they don't know, it's that they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth, they suppress the truth, they suppress the truth. The, the, the word suppress here is actually kind of like the image of, of taking a basketball and trying to hold it underwater. You ever try that, like try to hold a beach ball or basketball underwater? What happens when you kind of just barely let go? It pops up, it pops up, and you have to actively, continually try to suppress this is the idea. That's how people actively suppress the truth. Why do they suppress the truth? Well, we all know what the answer to that is. This is what Mark's been developing the whole time. They know God, but they suppress the truth because their hearts are what? They're hard. They know who God is. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness because their hearts are hard. They don't want God. They want their sin. They want their idolatry. In fact, look what Paul says in verse 19. He goes, What can be known about God is plain to them. It's clear. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although that they knew God, and there it is again, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Or in other words, they became idolaters. They gave up the one true God for their false gods. They know the truth. 
They just suppress it. And that's why Jesus will not give them a sign. They know the truth and they suppress the truth because their hearts are hard. And, and, what we, and that's what we've seen throughout Mark. In fact, what we know is a person's upbringing will not change their hearts. And neither will their religion. In fact, Paul Washer said it best just last night on Twitter. He says, A heart that has found religion but not experienced regeneration will be restless until it returns openly or clandestinely to the world. Christianity is not merely a new set of rules, but a new creation. Religion may bind the sinful heart, but cannot change it. Grace alone. Religion will not change a person's heart, and neither will the evidence. As we've seen in the first eight chapters of the book, Christ has done mind-blowing miracles demonstrating that he is, in fact, what Mark says he is, the son of the living God. And that his gospel is true and people still walk away with their hearts hard. You see, what people need more than anything else is not more evidence. It's not more proof. It's not more miracles. It's not more arguments. It's not more food programs. It's not more entertainment. It's not more relevance in the church. It is for God and only God to change their hearts. Because until that happens, they will always suppress the truth. All the while knowing in their hearts, the God that they hate. So what does that mean for us then? As we take those three verses and understand what's happening here, what does that mean for us as we, we seek to follow Christ and be more like Him? That's the point of this entire series, is to grow to be more like Him. Right? Their hearts are hard and we can't change that. So what do we do with that? Well, foundationally, what we need to, first of all, I think, I think it's helpful to understand some things. And the first thing we need to understand is you will not ever argue anyone into heaven. Just settle that in your hearts. You're not going to argue anyone into heaven. You might argue them into a corner. You might destroy their positions. You might cause them to back up and where they can't answer your questions. But you're not going to argue them into heaven. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Okay, I do believe you should still be able to give a defense for the hope that's in you. You should still be able to answer people's questions. And you need to be able to show people the truth from the Scriptures. You need to be able to show them what the Word of God actually says. And it certainly wouldn't hurt for you to really know some of the arguments for the reliability of the Bible and for the, for the existence of God. I think those are good things and helpful things for you to learn. right? And you should be prepared to give answers to people, but realizing... That having all the answers, this is why people get twisted up. They don't want to go out and talk to people and evangelize because I'm all the answers. That's not the problem. Yeah. Having all the answers it doesn't get, it's not what people get saved. Salvation is a miraculous, supernatural work of God, and you should be ready to share Christ no matter how little or how much you understand. Salvation is contingent upon Him and not, <laughs> and not your ability to argue. Number two, the lack of miracles is not the problem. Their hard heart is. And so when someone says, well, God needs to do a miracle before I believe, just understand when they say that, that's just not true. It's not true. It's not true. They won't. They need their hearts to change. Number three, this is the one that, pe that frustrates people, but it's the truth. There's no such thing as an atheist. They, they say they are, but there's no such thing. Right? No matter what they tell you, right? and I know this from experience, by the way, no matter what they tell you, the Bible makes it clear that they believe God exists. They just suppress the truth. And so it's not so much about going from unbelief to belief, but really it's going from a denial of the truth to, to confession of the truth. There are no atheists, only those who refuse to, to bow the knee to Christ. And then fourth... We need to understand how God has ordained for people to be saved. What the means are. How, to, how our hearts actually reached. Right? And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is through us. All of us. That God reaches hearts. He calls all of us to participate in the plan of redemption. By His grace, He calls us to participate. And we do that. How do we do that? Through the proclamation of the Word of God, the Gospel, and by loving people, all other people, 
and through our effectual prayers for people. And so as we always say, right, our job is what? Sow the seed. Love the people with a reckless abandon. Pray that God will change their hearts. Never give up on them. And then trust God to do his part. That's what we have left to do. That should right there help you to understand your job is not to argue them into heaven. Right? Your job is not to hold them down and convince them. Your job is not to be, you know, have to have a a doctoral degree in apologetics to be able to answer all their little questions. Your job is simple. Sow the seed, love the people, pray that God will change their heart, not give up on them, and then trust God to do his part. And now we see why, right? The problem out there is not a problem of information, it's not a problem of evidence, it's not a problem of resources. The problem is and always has been the hardness of their hearts. And it's a problem that only God can solve. But this is a solution that for some reason by God and his amazing grace invites us to participate in. He gave all of us a part to do. And so brothers and sisters, let us be on mission and to do our part and trust in and depend on God to do what he needs to do. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.